I'm not going mad, 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 I'm not going mad. Welcome to Gatekeeper. A podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Flam. Hi, this is Jamie Flam, and you are tuned into the podcast known as Gatekeeper. And if you notice, uh, there was no special effect on that one. Just wanted to give you a peek behind the curtain, what it really sounds like, and to really show you to what lengths our producer Andrew goes to really put on those effects. It's uh, almost as if it's an audio Photoshop. And I'm the model that's being airbrushed into uh, something that's pretty sweet. Gatekeeper. If you've listened to the podcast before, you know that it is roughly an hour of me talking and then me talking to another person and then it ends and then... You do whatever it is you do in your day. I don't know what you do in your day. Do you have a job? Probably. Most people need jobs to survive and pay their bills. I am paid to be a booker of a comedy club. The Hollywood Improv is where I am right now. I'm in the podcast studio with my producer just uh, inches away from me, uh, looking me in the eye. He's wearing glasses and a button-up shirt, which I meant to mention to him earlier, looked really nice. You're pulling it off. He's not pulling the shirt off. He's, he's pulling off the look and he's laughing because I'm so funny. I'm a booker of a comedy club. And well, I gave him a compliment and um, I wish I'd given it to him earlier in the day. So compliments, as I've always said, are the best way to be nice to someone. You can look that up. It is a quotable quote on many of the quote sites. Uh, Jamie Flam. I forgot what the quote is already, but it was about being nice. And it was one of the major themes of this episode that you're about to listen to, which contains an amazing conversation I had with Abby Launder, who created the Riot Festival here in LA, which is an alt comedy festival. It takes place downtown and it's really become something amazingly special. And I wanted to talk to her about how she started it, how it's organically evolved and grown and how it's led her to now being in the position of bringing comedy to Golden Voice, um, which is a subsidiary of AEG one of the biggest live entertainment companies in the world. I've always said that comedy is like a a big soup or a gumbo. Um, And Abby would be, in this case, the the spoon that's stirring it. Um, I would be the pot. And the comedians would be the the noodles that are shaped like... It's too stupid. People know that I've always said that comedy is like a giant hoagie and... Through this episode, we'll learn that Abby is the uh, a very important layer of mustard uh, that goes on. No, com- comedy is like a fucking submarine. It, it's like a submarine and no, because submarine is like a hoagie. It's too much. That's why it, it got in my head. Anyway, I'm going to stop doing analogies. Uh, Abby is great and you're going to love her and you're going to learn a lot from her about how to make cool things in the world and they get people to go to them and see them and how you can watch your career flourish if you just put your nose to the grindstone and work hard and be nice. That's right, be nice. Speaking of nice, we're going to transition into the interview with a very nice sound effect. Take it away, Andrew. Thank you. 
as Jay would say, uh, he's got flow. Gatekeepers. Zen, do you want to have a Zen moment with me? No. Close your eyes. Okay. Um, we can only control what we can control, and we can't control what we can't control. Amen. Uh, I was hoping that would be an organic, funny moment that would lead into us interviewing <laughs> this. Inter- Hi, Abby. Hello. How are you? Welcome to Gatekeeper. Oh, thank you for having me. It's it's a pleasure. I think this is a great idea. Thank you so much. Tell me more about this great idea that I've had. Well, now I don't want to because you. I know. Um, I think it's a great idea. I think there are people that could use a podcast like this. I think so. I think we're already getting a lot of people have been giving great feedback. So thank you out there. Yeah, thank Quick you plug everyone for feedback. <laughs> Abby, you seem like the perfect fit to come on the show. Oh, we'll see. Um, you, um, five years ago, uh-huh. created uh, what's now one of the biggest comedy festivals mm. in the country. Mm. I've watched your career blossom, <laughs> and so I want to talk to you about a riot comedy festival. Uh-huh. Um, B, your your role at now Golden Voice. Mm-hmm. And see, how did you get there? Oh, boy. Give us the quick rundown of like your path to comedy sure. and through comedy that got you to the festival. Okay. Uh, I'm from Michigan. Classic um, state. Classic state. <laughs> and uh, I lived in Chicago. I went there for school uh, for five years. And I fell hard into the improv and sketch scene. So improv Olympic annoyance, I owe all that. As business. a performer. As a performer. Yeah. I went to school for theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved it. I just fell in love with the scene, the comedy world, all of it. And then I moved out to Los Angeles, um, almost eight years ago at the very beginning of 2009, uh, as a performer. And then I started, I was kind of like, I wanted to be done. I wanted to, to do something different. So I started performing stand-up and then I started producing stand-up shows. And the very first show that I produced was at the back of a Chinese restaurant, Genghis Cohen. Right down the street. Yeah, 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 yeah. of course. That place, uh, it's a really cool room. It's a really cool room. It's kind of like pews. It's yeah. weird. It's You would never expect it to be in there. Um, but I did a bi-weekly show and I just got really good at producing and I really enjoyed producing. What, what to you, I mean, defines like good producing for a comedy show in L.A.? Uh, I am really hard to please in that, uh, realm in that realm. I, I think, um, there's very simple things that you can do to produce a very good comedy show. Start your show on time, train your audience that your show starts on time. No one likes, like, you're not, you're going to, you're not going to have repeat, um, customers, so to speak. Uh, if they're going to have to wait 15 minutes every single time for your show to start. or 20 15 minutes or might be an understatement for yeah, most shows. Yeah, right? Most shows here start late. So start your show on time. Train your audience that, you know, this is a professional thing and that's what you mean to do. So uh, that's number one. Number two, um, you have to promote. If you're going to put on a show, you can't just hope that people will show up. You really have to promote. I would make flyers. I would hand out flyers. I worked at like, a gourmet cafe off of Larchmont and I was the register girl. And every time I would, I would like make a rapport with my customers and then I would, I would give them flyers every week for my show. Like you really have to uh, work at filling your room because it's your responsibility if you're yeah. going to put on a show. Um, and <clears throat> something I've told people forever is you have to love your show so much that you feel like you'd be doing a disservice to anyone that you doesn't know about it. Yes. So I remember when I first started working here, I lived in Granada Hills with my parents. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other story. I didn't mean to go there, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the staff at the Starbucks 
Granada Hills mm-hmm. division, mm-hmm. store number 479. Oh um, they knew about the shows I was doing in the lab back then because yeah. I, I would love the show. I was excited about it. Yeah. And, and that's cool to hear that from, from you because you don't hear that so often. Yeah. I think you genuinely have to care um, in many different aspects. I think you also have to care about making sure that you are not just a promoter and someone who's producing a show, but at that point you, you're also responsible for these comics having a good show, but also having a good experience at your show. So, you know, are you easy to communicate with? Do you make sure that everyone knows where they're going? Do you take care of them as soon as they get there? Do you, you know, make sure that you have all of their needs met? Was this, uh, feel inherent to you or did that? Cause I know for you myself, know, it, it took many bad shows. I think, I have always had an inherent knack for organization um, and an inherent knack for, I've always been the, I've always been the person in my family as well to gather everyone and to organize everyone and make sure that gather. Um, (laughs) So I think it's definitely instinctual for me. Um, But I think you also have to really love it. And the reason why, and I'll like the reason why I had moved to, completely producing and stepped out of performing. When I visited Los Angeles before I decided to move here, there was a guy that I had a workshop with, have no idea what his name was, but he wrote some book. And like he had said, if there's anything else that you'd like to do besides being an actor, besides being a creative person in this industry, a writer, a director, a performer, whatever, do that thing. If there's anything else that you like to do that you're good at, do that thing. And that always sort of stuck with me. And at that moment I was like, Nope, I am a performer forever and ever. Amen. And then once I started producing, I was like, I really like this and I was good at it. And so I, when I started the festival, it was a big change for me to stop performing because it was twofold. One, I knew that if I was going to start a festival from scratch and have a full-time job, you know, managing this cafe that I did, uh, and doing stand-up that it would be really hard. So I was like, I need to devote myself to this thing that I'm going to try to do. A, B, I didn't want people to see me perform and then say, oh, oh, she's not very funny. So the festival's probably going to be bad. Um, I didn't want people to associate my stand-up with what the quality of the festival was going to be. So it was it was a sort of a two-pronged process. And, uh, you know, I just decided, you know what? Stand-up will always be there. If I ever mm-hmm. want to go back to it, I can. Um, it's not going to go anywhere. And yeah. So now here I am. So how long were you doing the show at Genghis Khan before that evolved into, I need to create a festival. Uh, so I did it biweekly for, I think about a year. And, um, after that I decided to start doing bigger, more experimental shows. So I think I did something here at the improv. Oh yeah. What was that? It was called the comedy booth. And I like built my own photo booth out of like PVC pipe. And like this, this like, this like cool curtain. And then I hired a photographer and then we put a photo booth in the lobby. Of, this must've been before my time. Yes, it yeah. was. And, and, uh, so that way, like, all, like there's a photo booth element to the show. Uh, and so I started to do weird, weirder things like that. I produced a show. The weirdest one that I did was I produced a show in this in, industrial downtown, like loading dock. I actually think the show was called The Loading Dock and it was like Eddie Pepitone, Alan Strickland. I produced it with Alan Strickland Williams. Um, oh God, who I think Kyle Kinane was on the yeah. show. And uh, it was in this huge industrial warehouse type of place. And 
we used the loading dock as the seating, and then there was an actual stage where they did performances randomly in this loading dock. And then I had like an art exhibition with like some local artists that I found and we sold art on site. And then I had a ping pong table and beer and wine and a photo booth and a DJ, you know, like all this stuff. Yeah, the full experience of. Yeah. I liked, um, you know, I liked producing events like big events for Mm -hmm. comedy. And so it was, then I started a, another show called neighbors, which was maybe like one of my favorite shows that I've ever done because it was like, I did it with Carl Hess Mm -hmm. and it was like in the back of a clothing vintage clothing store across the street from basically our house. It was called neighbors because him and I were neighbors and it was like literally like in between our apartments basically. And there was like a fire pit. So every time I would bring like s'mores for like people to roast during the shows and like, that's awesome. Who doesn't want to like watch stand up comedy around a fire pit while they're like idiots <laughs> eating s'mores. So I, I would do stuff like that. That was just different so much and weird. Fun. And it was definitely, I mean, there was a time in the last, you know, five or six years, especially where, <clears throat> you know, they're quote unquote gimmicks. Yeah. And what's your take on that? Because I, I remember, you know, there was an article that came out in the LA Weekly. It was like, are LA comedy shows becoming too gimmicky? And like, to me, there's a difference between a gimmick and an experience. Like, yeah, if you're saying like, this is a show for people that went to Harvard between the years of 2000 and 2004, that's a gimmick to get those people. But a show I, is a I show. Don't, I don't, yeah. A good show is a good show is a good show. You know what By I mean? By the way, that Harvard show was pretty good. <laughs> Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't really take that article too seriously just because I feel like if you produce a good show, it doesn't really matter what the format is. It's a good show. Yeah. Um, and I think it speaks to how comedy's evolved. Mm-hmm. It's not that people need to have a gimmick to get people out. Cause you know, a good standup show with just great standups will still get people out. Of course. But of course. people I, I feel are more sophisticated and more savvy now. And they, they want uh, more of an experience when they go to see right. a show. But it's also the type of thing like you can book the most amazing lineup ever. You can have every headliner you can imagine. But if the setting for your show is bad because you don't care or because mm-hmm. you don't understand what makes that's another thing that I think I had as a benefit of, go, of starting the festival is that I was a performer. So I know what it feels like to perform in places that are terrible sure. versus places that are, oh, wow, this is really great. Todd Glass is a good example of somebody who is like, crazy OCD about, but in a good way about like making a show the best that it can absolutely be. He is a, like he is the lighting, the sound, like everything. Also, I think he used to produce a show in his garage. Mm -hmm. Have you heard, you know this? Like, and he, it was like, apparently like one of the most amazing shows ever because he cared so much because you can throw, anybody can throw a show together like in a garage, but it, you know, how does it sound? How are there any lights? What does the backdrop look like? Does it feel like a stage or are you just performing on a slab of concrete? You know, oh, it's those little details and it doesn't take much. It really doesn't. It really doesn't take much. I think you just genuinely have to care. Yeah. And that was something that I, I still continue to try to do better every year. I try to make the festival better every year and some in many different ways. What was the, what was the genesis of now? Now it's festival time. Uh, I had auditioned for the Just for Laughs Montreal Comedy Festival, uh, which, you know, a lot of people do every single year. And I had, a, I got a call back and I went to the call back and I bombed. Um, it was here. <laughs> the lab? Yeah. It was here and it was in the main room. actually. Oh, main room. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't do great. Cause at that point when I had auditioned, like 
when I had auditioned, I didn't even, I didn't care. You know what I mean? I was like, there's no way I'm going to get a callback. And then of course I got a callback. And then I was like, Oh no, I really care yeah. about this. And then I bombed. Um, and I went out to lunch with my dear friend, Eric Abrams. <laughs> um, Eric Abrams was uh, one of the bookers for JFL. Then he worked at Comedy Central. Now he- And uh, former booker here. Form, and former, and former booker here. Yeah, former gatekeeper. Yes. And he's great. And uh, I remember having, I was like, I, after I found out that I didn't get another call back, I had messaged him and I was like, hey, I'd love to go out to coffee sometime and just talk about if you could give me some feedback for my set, that would be great. And he was like, sure. Which by the way, for listeners, like, just ask, just mm -hmm. ask people, like, I know it's scary, but like, just ask because the worst thing that they're going to say is, oh, you know what? I can't, sorry. And then that's it. But at least you've asked. But you're talking about, I mean, like, yeah, I found the accessibility of people in the comedy community is it's, generally pretty great. I think it is pretty great. But I think a lot of times, you know, it's this industry is scary and it's scary to approach people and it's scary to ask for things. But part of it is you just have to ask for things. And unfortunately, a lot of the times people are going to say no. but also people will say yes. And that's how really like I met with Eric and, and we started talking about my set bubble. And I said, why isn't there a comedy festival here like this? Everyone lives here. It would be great. And he, he pretty much laughed. And Eric's a dear friend of mine, he pretty much laughed in my face. And he was like, ah, that's a terrible idea. And I was like, <laughs> why? And he was like, because LA is like a festival every day. You don't really need something like that here. The competition here is it's just too, there's just too much of it. And I yep. was like, yeah, you're probably right. So then I took the idea away for like eight months and didn't do anything with it. And then eight months went by. And I think I, I was talking with some friends and we sort of agreed that, yeah, this does need to be a thing that happens here. So I just said, okay. And I just said, I'll do it. <laughs> and I put together a Kickstarter which is originally how the festival got started. Um, well, even, I mean, I'm just curious, like before the kickstart even happens, what are the steps that it takes? The steps? Like, is there a business plan? Um, a business plan. Definitely did not have a business plan. Um, which makes I, it more inspiring. I, I, did, I, had, I had no business plan. I'm, I'm the type of person where uh, once I know I want to do something, uh, I don't necessarily know all of the steps between point A and point C, but I will figure them out and I'll just kind of jump and look, you know, I think had I have known how hard this was going to be, I would have never done it. And for that, I'm grateful because it's the best thing ever. Um, but it definitely was the type of thing where I think you have to, when you, when you do a festival or when you do something like this, you have to at least say, okay, what are the steps? Like, what are the most basic steps? Okay, number one, we need to raise money. <laughs> okay, how do we raise money? Um, well, we probably have to make a video and like, let's do Kickstarter. Because at the time, Kickstarter, Kickstarter was just like starting out yeah, yeah. and it was like kind of like, ooh. And so it was an intern at Red Hour Digital and uh, a guy named Mike Rosenstein was there and I told him about my idea and I said, can you help me out? Can you introduce me to some folks at Funny or Die? I'd like to see if I could shoot there maybe if they're just willing to like help me out. And they were, they were like, yeah, that's a cool idea. You can come, you can use our space. You can use like any of the equipment that we have here. And I was like, awesome. That's so cool. And then I was like, oh, I have to get people to do it now. So then I was like, all right, I'll do like a black and white PSA. It'll be very serious, but it's about how like the city of Los Angeles needs a comedy festival. And so having produced all these shows over the years with all of these comedians, I had obviously good relationships with a lot of these people. So I was able to ask people like Matt Bronger and Eddie Pepitone and all these people that were genuinely like 
you know, they knew me, they knew that I produced a good show. They knew that I always turned out quality stuff. And I said, here's my idea. Do you want to be in this Kickstarter video? And it just sort of snowballed. So I think I ended up having like 40 to 50 people in this Kickstarter video. Megan Mullally, Bob Odenkirk. Yeah. I, mean, I remember Pat seeing that. I was like, it was it, crazy. This Abby gal. <laughs> it's crazy. And yeah. it just, it really did happen very organically. And so I scheduled it out. I scheduled the shoot and I scheduled when people would come. I had craft services ready for all these folks. Well, and, what kind of snacks are we talking about here? You know, I got my salami, cheese, mm. salami. Cheese and salami. <laughs> uh, you heard it here first, folks. Gatekeeper. <laughs> Uh, this is the real cheese gold. and salami. Always make sure you have it <laughs> We're on talking hand. A hard salami or a more of a soft, a Hebrew national. Definitely, definitely, just like your standard deli soft slice salami. All right. Um, All right cool. And then I made the video, and uh, I, I was able, and then we launched the Kickstarter, and we got funded for like a little over twenty thousand dollars. I think it surpassed its goal, which is great. And, and then so I, you had this budget. Did you already have venues and and dates? And, we. Or just, we, I think so. At that point I started talking to, we knew where we wanted it and it was in downtown on main street, basically the downtown independent five-star bar in the smell. We also knew that we wanted to rent out a parking lot and put food trucks and vendors and arcade games and like all this stuff in this parking lot. Actually, I think the first year we didn't have arcade games, but we wanted them, but we couldn't mm -hmm. afford them. And so we had all of this. I think I had like, had an idea of when I wanted to do it. And the first year of Riot was actually in September. That's when we decided to do it. So the Kickstarter got funded. And um, basically thereafter, I decided to uh, go and get, I was like, all right, now it's, you know, actual production time. So I had a full-time job. I was still managing that cafe. Uh, the festival was in September of 2012. And I had that job at that cafe all the way up until the end of August. And I would have had it continuously, but the cafe closed ah. miraculously because honestly, there would have been no way that I could have kept that job uh, and, and produced the festival from scratch. So we did it that first year and uh, then we moved it to January after that because it was 109 degrees that weekend. Yeah, that's good. That's something you learn. <laughs> something you learn. Your venues don't have air conditioning. Uh -oh. uh, only one of them did. It was brutally hot, brutally hot. But it was great. And so the first year of the festival um, mm -hmm. went well despite the heat? Yes, it went well despite the heat. Um, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this are probably wondering, like, they're probably, you guys are probably thinking, like, no one in their right mind would start a comedy festival like this unless they had mommy and daddy to fall back on or savings to fall back on. I had, I had nothing. I had nothing. I did this completely. It, this is, by the way, like insane. Like no one in their right mind would, I don't think, do something like this. So the first year I was like, if I don't, if I don't sell X amount of tickets, I'm going to lose money. And I had no plan for how to pay people. Mm -hmm. I had no plan. I, this is like moronic again, but it's the type of thing where it's like, you just leap. Yeah. And then- you figure it out. And that's exactly what happened. I lost like $10,000. I don't have that money. <laughs> um, and I paid everyone except for one vendor. Um, and I went the to, salami and guy. I went to, I went, <laughs> I went to that vendor and I, and I said, I'm so sorry. It was humiliating, but I said, I'm so sorry. I don't have your money. And, um, this particular vendor was like, don't worry about it. 
which is like crazy. It's it was like it was the type of thing where you know they're not like a, a normal rental vendor. They were mm-hmm. like more of like they're a radio station in LA, uh, and so they were like we we like you. We like what you did. We know you lost money, but it's all right. Don't worry about it. That's amazing. It's crazy. It's crazy. And I'm not, I, it, and so there's humility involved in this business. You're going to make mistakes in this business. Um, but the goal is to like learn from those mistakes. Right. Um, and then what ended up happening after that is I ended up working at KCRW for the next three years because they which were is the so, radio station you just, which is a radio station I just mentioned because they were so impressed with so, me having produced the event on my own that they were like, Hey, do you want to come produce our live events? You did a great job. And I was like, really? <laughs> so the advice is, uh, you know, don't pay your vendors and you'll probably get a job. <laughs> I know it's terrible advice. I don't know what the, what to pull from this story other than like, Work your ass off and do work, a good job and people will notice. And, work your ass off and do a good job. But also you're just not going to have a safety net sometimes. Um, and that, I, I hope if anything you pull from this is that like, just that's okay. You don't have to have a safety net. And I'm not saying that it's going to work out all the time because it still hasn't, you know, for me and, and other ventures that I've done. But sometimes if you work your ass off, it will work out. And I think you know, you can build your own safety net over time. There doesn't have to be some predetermined. Well, even the idea that, <clears throat> and you know, I, I've quoted on this podcast a bunch of times, but this book called Lynchpin and to be a linchpin, it's, 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 if you, you know, uniquely and in a way that you only, you can, um, you know, put your heart and soul into something yeah. that is its own safety net because that will not go unnoticed by, it might be uh, noticed by people you didn't even expect. Yeah. Like the vendors that totally didn't get paid. Yeah. And also I was, I worked really hard to maintain good relationships with everyone that I had worked with for the festival and make sure that everyone knew that I appreciated everything. Cause you know, when you're a first year festival, you call in every favor that you can possibly imagine. So being nice to people, being grateful, being communicative and being honest, yeah, I think is like very key. No matter if you're a producer or an actor or writer or director, I think one thing that I have pulled throughout the five years that I consistently will get on an air horn about is to be nice. Yeah, I think it's very important to be nice, and I think it's very easy for people to just be very negative and, and be mean and tear each other down because I think that's what people think that this industry likes. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what this is about, but it's not. Just be nice and support one another. It's never going to do you any harm to do that. And, and I, have you know, I mean, to this day, people ask me like booking a comedy club has got to be insane. Mm-hmm. It's the, the, the biggest names are without fail, the nicest, coolest people. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that there's a handful of people that sure. make it that are the worst, <laughs> <laughs> but by and large, the, the, the people that make it. And I, I don't think that's any coincidence. I mean, talent will get you far, but. I think it's the fact that people are cool as fuck and nice. Yeah. I know. I mean, we were going to talk about this at some point, but you asked what, like, is a determining factor of how I, you know, what's like how I say yes, how yeah, I say I no. Yeah. And if, if you are not nice and, and I know you're not nice because you haven't been nice to me or you haven't been nice to the festival or you're, you're outwardly mean, I will not book you on the festival. I will not. I love it. That's <laughs> it's a good a, barrier. 
it's a barrier, but it's luckily a barrier that I don't usually have to enforce too often because generally this community is pretty great. Mm -hmm. Generally this community is very supportive and very nice, but also social media, like if you're going to put something on blast, um, people are going to see it. People are going to talk about it. And I think it's an interesting, I just think it's an interesting relationship that, that comedians have with social media. And I think that, you know, it's their vice, it's their tool essentially to get their voice out. But I do think that it, it's just something that also can be a tool that can benefit you. And by that, I mean, you can choose uh, if you want to have a good relationship or a bad relationship with certain things in the business. And if you voice your opinions about, and I'm not telling people that they should, you know, if you have a bad opinion about something and you want to express it by all means, but do realize that sometimes those things have repercussions sure. and that there isn't just, you can't just put stuff on blast and then think, Oh, why didn't I get into this comedy festival that I shit on? Yeah. Like, uh, mold, like repetitively, like there's probably <laughs> a reason. And I am very like, you have to really, really, really push like my buttons before I will ultimately say no. Like I'm, I, I am not a person who holds grudges. I really am not. I think they're a huge waste of time. Um, I, but I am a person who is very supportive of being supportive and nice. That's amazing. <laughs> it's a simple thing. It's, it's very simple. It's a very simple thing. So, I mean, especially, I mean, and also I, I've talked about this too. It's like for a first year comedy festival going back, like remembering, and, and I talk about like first year booking a club and, people are going to learn and they're going to fail in some things and they're going to succeed in others. So mm -hmm. before you go on blast, as you say, um, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt, give them time to grow and evolve and watch these things grow because not everything's going to be perfect and not every comic is going to yes, get into your festival seriously, that first year. To that. I also want to say to what I just said, I, if you don't get into a comedy festival, you should be mad. You should be bummed. I would be bad. I was mad. I was bummed. You know what I mean? But I wanted to get into JFL so bad that I didn't, I didn't post. I didn't try to tear it down. I didn't try to tear it to pieces because I was angry. And sure in my head, I was like, I can't believe this person got in and I didn't get in. I can't believe they didn't give me a callback. I had the best set of the night. I can't, I, I a hundred percent feel like feel anyone that has those thoughts. Those are normal. Those are healthy. Like everyone thinks stuff like that, you know, that's natural, but I think your attitude and the way that you literally convey and communicate can make or break you. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to another theme of the podcast is entitlement. Mm -hmm. And when you show any uh, measure of that, it really rubs people that are making decisions the wrong way yeah. because it doesn't take into account all the politics and all the things. And sometimes it's an unfortunate reality, but you could have had a better set at that JFL audition or whatever it is than that other person, but they have X manager and they have this agent and mm -hmm. they needed to fill this quota, whatever it was like, there's so many factors mm -hmm. that go in. So it's not necessarily an indictment of your talent. Totally. Um, Do you so, know who's a good example <laughs> of who? somebody who's, nice and works hard and has no sense of entitlement is my dear old husband, Ahmed Rucha. And I'm not trying to plug him on this podcast, but when we first started dating, 
It was like one of the first things that I had learned from him was just like, this is a crazy story, but like, that's not that crazy. And we get it's a crazy story. <laughs> he, when we first started dating, I had just stopped performing stand up, and he was obviously still doing it. And I remember we went to a show and there was a comedian on stage that we both knew and the comedian um, did their set and then they got, off, they got off stage and they came up and they started talking to us and Ahmed said, good set. And they continued talking and I was just like talking too. And afterwards we left and Ahmed was like, why didn't you tell so-and-so that they had a good set? And I said, oh, cause I didn't think they had a good set. And Ahmed's like, you know, sometimes it's okay just to be supportive. And I was like, what? But I didn't think they had a good set. Why would I tell, why would I say good set if I didn't think they had a good set? And Ahmed's like, would you want someone to say good set to you after you got off stage, whether you had a good set or not? And I said, yeah, I would. And I think that's like a really good example of like being supportive of your community. And it, you know, like I said, it doesn't do any. Well, there's always the, um, you look like you had fun up there approach. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of, uh, (laughs) you're right. But yeah, if it's a good comic, yeah, um, yeah, you want to perpetuate uh, shitty comedy, but you don't, you don't. But at the same time, if you're watching a set and someone immediately gets off stage and then you immediately talk to them, like just say something, like you said, yeah, good set, or acknowledge that you know they just performed and whatever. And I just think, or just just do something that's along the lines of being supportive. Yeah, support everyone. That's I love that. Yeah. So for the, the festival now, I mean the first year especially, but let's really get into the yes and the no sure. and the, the egos and, you know, coming from, and something I, I connect with you on as a performer and someone that before I was ever booking a comedy club, um, had personal relationships and friendships with the comedy community. And now to this day, I get 500 avails plus a week and I'm looking at, Oh, there's 30 friends here that I'm it's not booking crazy. at all. How, <laughs> how do you deal with that? Uh, I, uh, I mean, mine, my life the festivals are different, right? Cause it's only once a year, but I don't take submissions. Um, we, we, I don't have a And the reason why is because I think there are two different types of comedy festivals or the festivals that take submissions. Like Bridgetown is a great example of that. Bridgetown is a festival that takes submissions. Bridgetown is also a great example of a festival that curates some of the best up and coming talent talent that you've never heard of talent that you've never seen of like they they're great at that riot is more of a curated festival and by that we don't take submissions um and so people are often like how do we get into your festival then well you have to have an agent or a manager or um you you know if someone recommends you you know that type of thing but we don't formally take submissions as a festival so does that mean that i don't have loads of submissions to sort through from an industry person or an agent or manager or whatever. Yes, of course. Um, but for me too, it's also, you know, I think it's a matter of a few things. Have I heard, have I heard of you before? And maybe I've heard of you because you're not just doing stand up. maybe you were in a sketch, maybe you're an improv, maybe like, you know, there's different tools in your tool belt that I've seen or heard from you from. Mm-hmm. But I think, the submission process in general and watching tapes, you start to learn what's good, what's bad, what's, and there's very simple things like make sure your audio is good. Um, make sure we can see your face. Sure. <laughs> Don't wear something where we can't see your face. I've only booked uh, like five people that, whose face I couldn't see. Yeah. Backfired every time. <laughs> 
Um, Three of them didn't have heads. Ugh, yeah. Okay. I'm a I'm a comedy booker. <laughs> That's my new uh, thing when I Jamie say Flam. that joke. Um, I book a comedy club. Boy, I, I don't know. What else do you want to know about how I sort through it? I mean... Have, I mean, do you have any uh, you know specific stories of like um, having to say no uh, to, oh gosh. or just dealing with the the fallout of you know producing? I was a just saying this to you before we started recording, which is that this is my least favorite part of the job. Say no. It, it's my least favorite part. Sure. I. It's there are so many egos, but it's not just comedians' ego. It's the agents' ego. It's the managers' mm-hmm. ego. I don't really fall into politics maybe as much as something like a just for laughs does just for laughs is a staple. It's been there for years and years and years. So they have relationships, you know, from over 30 years with agents and managers that they might weigh more heavily on for their festival than for me. Right. I've only been here for five years. So my relationships don't necessarily influence who gets into the festival as much. So, you know, before you go saying, oh, well, you know, she booked XYZ because that agent, that's not really the case. Um, I try to book people that I think are funny. That's pretty much my only rule. Are you funny? Great. Are you nice? Even better. Um, and are you famous and are you going to sell tickets? Yes. A hundred percent. Which is, which is absolutely like, valid. I think I got a lot of flack for the first year or <laughs> well let's let's be honest I've, i always get flack for this but i think people that don't produce events of this magnitude don't really understand that there are financials involved and that you do need to sell tickets so um i had you know everyone on the festival the first year i think had a tv credit in some way shape or form with maybe the handful of like comedians that i think i chose to watch that year and that the, the reason is because, you know, you need to sell tickets. So you do need to book headliners and you do need to book people that have a Conan credit or some sort of other legitimate credit. So that way you can, you know, try to make sure that you have an audience to watch these people, mm-hmm. uh, which I think people just take for granted. So why can't you just, you know, but it's like, well, there's other aspects involved that, not only do you need to sell tickets, you need to have an audience there, but then you also want to make sure that, you know, your, your festival has a good reputation mm-hmm. and that you're essentially you're building a foundation, right? For the first year I was building a foundation and I wanted people to come to this festival and be so amazed by the comedy that was there that they were going to come back the next year, <clears throat> which I think is like something that maybe not everyone really understood. Mm-hmm. And it gives you as a booker much, much more freedom in, in year two and three and beyond when a hundred percent as the, as we've trust. gone on, I've been able to get more and more and more and more and more creative with the programming. I've been able to highlight people that are not known and don't have any representation. And like, it's my goal to eventually get to a place where all of the comics to watch showcases are people that do not have any representation at all across the board. That's my goal. Um, And it's also my goal to be able to feature people that have, you know, been doing it for a long time that do deserve more recognition. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like the fact that not everyone in the world knows who Eddie Pepitone is blows my mind. Mm -hmm. Like I think Eddie Pepitone is just, he's one of my favorite people ever. You know what I mean? The fact that not everyone in the world knows who Maria Bamford is, is crazy to me. Um, And what I realized is that back when Eric had said, why would you do a festival here? There's a festival like this every day. What I realized is that the people that come to Riot LA are the people that don't necessarily get to see comedy, but once a year, 
they're the people that like comedy, but they're not necessarily the people who know, uh, you know, all of all of the people that are in the festival except for this big headliner and that big headliner. So what's awesome is that these comedians that, sure, maybe they have a Conan credit, maybe you and I know who they are. Uh, the majority of people that come to the festival don't know who they are. So it's a really great opportunity for comedians to start getting a wider fan base and to showcase in front of an audience that they just don't get to showcase in front of in yeah. Los Angeles. And it's such a, we have a, live in a massive city. Yes. There's so I mean, any night this, this club is not packed. It blows my mind. I'm like, there are so many millions of people. We just need 200 in that room. Where are they? I know. But yeah, that, you make such a good point. And it, it is, especially now, like forgetting sometimes how insular our, our world is. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, there are people that like, yeah, of course. And I, I can name 20 names right now, but we know them. We know they have great credits, but Almost no one else knows who they are. Mm -hmm. I also think there's a big part of it is the 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 audience that comes to the festival. Maybe there maybe there is a little bit of crossover, but typically the people that go to Meltdown every week, typically the people that know about like Sleepaway Camp. You know what I mean? Like those aren't typically the same audiences that are coming to the festival and buying a twenty dollar ticket. Cause they know, they know about the underground scene here. They know where to go. They know that they can go to hot tub and see Hannibal Duras drop in and they can pay $5. You know what I mean? Like they know about it, but the people that come to the festival don't, and they don't have time to dedicate to fit like, you know, scouring the underbelly of this comedy world in Los Angeles. And I do think that there's also an, like an, a, not an epidemic, but I do think that when I first started and consistently throughout the year, a lot of people will be like, why would you go to the Riot Lake Comedy Festival when you could see any of these performers any day of the week at XYZ shows for zero dollars? And I, I always thought that those people were just shooting themselves in the foot because you're, it's a performer who's saying that. So it's like, do you want to ever get paid for comedy in your life? Because right. <laughs> if you do, then you should actually be grateful that there is something like this in Los Angeles that is training an audience that comedy has value and mm -hmm. that comedy is worth 10 to 15 to $20 a ticket. You know, I don't, I think there's a big gap and a big yeah. like problem with people not, you know, getting down on places that charge for comedy and it's like you are a comedian you should want people to be paying for the art that you of were creating course. it's your career it's your career and that's yeah. not to say that there shouldn't be free shows that's not to say that like like hot tub isn't great and like you know all of these other weekly shows aren't great but i i think there's also like a real need for acknowledgement from a lot of comedians to support uh, things that do charge like riot, like the improv, mm -hmm. like, you know, I think. Well, so it's the idea too. I mean, I mean, this town especially, and I'm sure New York as well. Um, there is the aspect of, you know, comics are, are working their stuff out mm -hmm. and you're not seeing the polished stuff, but you know, riot certainly. And, you know, most nights here, people say showcase club, you're paying because a, it's a produced curated experience, but you should be seen. I mean, that's not to say when Sarah Silverman drops in that, She's doing, she can work out. This isn't her and Louis sure. C.K.'s workout room. But for everyone else, like, do, you should be doing your, your 10, 15 best minutes. Totally. And that has value. I just took my boss, who is the president of AEG Live. His name is Rick Mueller. I just took him to Meltdown for the first time. Took him on a Wednesday night. He had never 
Ben. He he knows Chris Hardwick. He's a fan. Um, but he had never been to the theater. And he was so like, um, I think he was like, wow, this is, this is definitely something that's cool. I mean, as the show went on, you know, we were watching all these comics and he leaned and I leaned over to him and I was like, I was like, you know, Kyle Canaan's on stage right now with a notebook. I was like, there's a reason why I was like, because shows like this and places like this are where a comedian will work out their material. Also probably why, you know, you pay $5 to get into that show versus seeing Kyle Canaan at a proper theater in Los Angeles where, you know, you're going to pay 20 to $30 maybe to see him or at the improv where you're going to pay a little bit more because he's going to, he's going, he's, he's going to do his A game. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? He's going to do his best material. And so I think that there's also a little bit of like a need for an understanding about how that works. Can we talk a little bit about now sure. career wise where you're at? So AEG, we just said. Yeah. Golden so a- <laughs> I have a jabby jab. Um, so AEG live, um, uh, owns golden voice. Golden voice is like, uh, it's like the cool sort of hip brand essentially underneath AEG live, AEG live, um, to give you like a better, it's like our competitor is Live Nation, right? Mm-hmm. So we're a big concert promoter company. Um, we have lots of venues that we own. We own the Staples Center. We own we own LA Live. We own uh, the Fonda, the Roxy, the El Rey, um, the Novo. And then we have several regional offices all over the country and we own venues all over the country as well. Golden Voice um, produces the, the Coachella, uh, FYF, Stagecoach, Hangout, Firefly. They do big festivals. Yes. Um, I had met with them last summer because uh, an agent that I, that likes me introduced me because at this point I was going into year four of the festival and I was struggling. I was really struggling. I couldn't rolling the dice every single year and keeping my fingers crossed. Like, I hope I sell enough tickets because if not, I'm going to lose thousands of dollars. It was really hard. It was very stressful. So I had started reaching out to different people saying, does anyone know of anyone that might be interested in talking to me? This agent introduced me to AEG Live. And then basically I had three meetings and that was sort of it. So Riot LA is now under the Golden Voice arm. It's now Golden Voice Festival, which is really cool. They don't have any comedy festivals. Um, They don't even really have a comedy department. So they brought me on board to continue to run it. They don't touch it creatively at all. Um, They just help me with the production and obviously with sponsorship and finances and all that kind of stuff. And then they brought me on board to start to bring more comedy into their venues that they own and operate. Um, So I started to do like a bi-monthly show with Ron Funches at the Roxy called Midnight Merriment, which Mm -hmm. is fantastic. Um, Trying to essentially get more comedy into the company. So it's, um, it's an, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I've been there for a little less than a year. It's the biggest job I've ever had. It's certainly a different world yeah. that I'm not used to. I came from public radio. Right. You know what I mean? Where everyone's like, you know, it's like our computers were from like 1932. <laughs> like we just like printouts for everything here. Everything is, you know, at AG live, it's, it's a big company. There's 500 people in our building, which is a lot. Well, I think it's, it's inspiring too. Just, I mean like the, how organically, you know, going for your dreams and creating this festival has just turned into a position where you're bringing more comedy to this city yeah. in venues that never had it with a massive company. Yeah. So it's congrats to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Uh, yeah. It's been, it's been definitely interesting. I think 
it's a very cool position that I'm in to sort of define the role and define what comedy looks like at this company. It's also, it's also challenging because I am at a company where literally everyone only speak like speaks like the music language. So I kind of am on an Island a little bit, mm-hmm. um, which is good and bad. You know, I can do my own thing and coconut. Um, right. Uh huh. For Pompeii, sure. Like, yep. yeah, rum and stuff. Um, <laughs> but you know, it can also be like, challenging and that no one knows who the comedians are that I'm working with. And it's challenging in the fact that we have no history really like live nation has been doing comedy for years and years and mm-hmm. years and years. And we haven't. So um trying to essentially lay this groundwork and this foundation to establish these relationships and start getting comedy more into the fold is, you know, it's a, it's a big um, operation, but it is a company that has, an insane amount of resources, which is awesome. Yeah. Resources are good. Resources are good. And the people that work there are incredibly smart and they've been doing it for years. And so everyone's very, you know, helpful and it's good. Awesome. So, so Abby, <laughs> yes, Jamie. where do we see riot? Where do we see you in the next five, 10, you 45 years? For like two seconds. Um, Cool. I mean, it'll be the fifth year of Riot in January. We moved it to January because it's, again, it was 109 in September. Yeah, and that's um, only 103 <laughs> in January. Uh, so where where do I see it headed? I mean, I, I do think it's expanding and it's growing every year. Last year, it more than doubled in size, which is incredible. Um, and I think it's, I see it spreading into sort of different genres and different mediums within comedy in itself. So I, I see it's sort of moving into TV premiere, film premiere, more of an industry heavy type of thing. Mm-hmm. I also see it moving into a lot of bigger shows with bigger performers at bigger theaters. Uh, but I also see it moving into this really cool, fun, like festival carnival type video of, games. No, yeah, no, <laughs> not video games. I do not. No, I'm just kidding. I love video games. Um, but it's like, it's always had a neighborhoody carnival fun type of vibe. But I think especially coming into a company like this, they are the masters essentially at creating, you know, they erect an entire festival in the desert and it's incredible. So I think moving into a space where the production is going up and up and up and you can expect it to reflect, I think that, and sort of definitely become a pretty big, you know, staple in the, in the well, comedy festival. Is. And, and shows at Staples. <laughs> yes. Why not? I mean, it's for sure in the cards, I think in the future, you know, it's just, there's a, about a handful of people tops that'll fill an arena. Schumer. CK. Put them on the bill together. Kevin Hart. If the Spanglers open up. <laughs> done. <laughs> done so? I think so. We're actually going to move this year. We're going to go to the Ace and the Orpheum and use those as the home base uh, for the festival because where the festival normally is for the past four years, uh, we they got demolition notices mm. uh, about a month ago. So the entire block where the festival normally is, is being demolished. Really? All of our venues are being demolished. Uh, to build what? Condos, Jimmy. Oh. Condos. Gotta love those buildings that'll be empty for a long freaking time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there's so much development in downtown Los Angeles. It's crazy. Um, so we're going to move to the Orpheum and the Ace. There's two small 
rooms inside of each theater that we'll use to consistently showcase probably a lot of the comics to watch. Um, and then there's a parking lot outside of the Orpheum in the back that we'll use for maybe a Ferris wheel. A uh, Ferris wheel. Maybe. We'll see. Oh my God. <laughs> well, that could be the best spoiler of all time. Maybe. We'll see. I think it would be the first comedy festival with a... With a Ferris wheel? Maybe Montreal's had one. No, they don't. No. I went last year. I saw it. no Ferris wheel. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> well, there's a whole circus thing. The people don't know about JFL is like the, kind of like the the new faces. Like it's like one small segment of this massive festival that's It is. It mostly, is a very small segment. I think clown related. <laughs> <laughs> the festival does have, I did, they, it's French a very, clown. yes, there are a lot of like French artistic things that are very cool about that festival, which is neat. Um, and, uh. I mean, I think we're going to try to, I'm going to a lot of different festivals to see what different elements I can pull into Riot that I really like. Like I'll go to Edinburgh this year, which oh, amazing. I, I've never been. It's yeah. been going for like 50 years or something. Yeah, that's it's a thing. It's like a huge thing. Will it's you be huge. in Montreal this year? I will. Great. Yeah. Are you going to go? I'm going to go. <gasps> Let's have some fun. Okay. <laughs> um, well, you've already given so much great advice. I think, um, I mean, I guess my last question is, and I, this is something I ask for my own knowledge, but mm-hmm. How do you remain productive? How do you stay focused with so many distractions? I'm um, a bad example because I'm such a homebody. I love going. But you home. get stuff done. So, like, is it just haphazard, or like, what, what, what does it take um, to keep organized? To keep organized? Yeah. Oh boy. Ah, uh, what does it take to keep organized? I think. Are you a spreadsheet gal? I'm, I'm really not like I use spreadsheets, but for me, I think it's, I'm a huge to-do list person. I'll create massive to-do lists that I will keep for months and months and months. And I will like slowly cross off things on these to-do lists. Um, I'm a huge scheduler. I'll put reminders in my calendar, not for meetings or anything like that, but for deadlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I think that helps me when I actually can look at my calendar and see what I have coming down the pipeline. Um, but in general, like I've seen people that aren't organized do stuff like this. I've seen actors, comedians, whatever that aren't organized do this. And it just makes your life a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think ultimately that maybe this is bad advice, but I think you just have to find what works for you. Like yep. everyone has a different system. Is it note cards? Is it whatever? Um, but I think as far as like, keep like being productive, I try to, I try to do something new for myself, um, every year and set goals for myself. So, you know, maybe it's going to see shows I'll set like, all right, I'm going to go see 10 shows this month and I will actually put the shows in my schedule. I'll look at like the comedy bureau or something and I'll see what shows are coming up for the next like month or two. And then I will just put, I'll just put them all on my schedule because if I don't, I won't go. Or if I like, have a Wednesday night free and I don't have something already in my calendar, I'm not going to go out. Sure. I'm just going to go home, like watch reruns of Game of Thrones. Yeah. That might be my next uh, show. You haven't watched it yet? <laughs> no. Oh my God. I can't even believe you're sitting here right now. I know. Really? <laughs> Is it better than Silicon Valley? It's fucking amazing. It's so good. And I don't even like fantasy stuff and it is mind-blowingly good. <laughs> All right. Well, I just got HBO Go, so... Um, oh, yeah? Welcome got, to go 2016. Right I know, right? <laughs> Well, this has been a really awesome conversation. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. 
How was it compared to the other ones? Was it better or worse? Uh, this was the 19th episode. I would say it's in the top top 14 for sure. Yeah, there were a few clunkers in the mix. Okay. <laughs> no, I think it was, I would generally uh, or genuinely put this. Um, I wasn't putting, I'm just kidding. It doesn't matter. And the, they're all, they're all, they're all amazing for different reasons. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> it was great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And so do you have, um, do you want to give like the riot Twitter Pitch? and all oh. that stuff? <laughs> um, fifth annual will be January 20th through the 22nd, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, it's about over 50 shows in essentially two and a half days, uh, over 200 performers. You can go to riotla.com. You can find us on Twitter at riotla or Instagram or Facebook. If you have any questions, you can email info at riotla.com. It's amazing. Well, thank you, Abby Launder. I'm excited to see your career continue to flourish. Thank you. As am I yours, Jamie Flam. Likewise. Thank you so much. <laughs> and my final parting shots, work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional, be undeniable, and be cool as fuck always. Um, all right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network, The Hollywood Improv, Andrew Steven, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab. I've always said comedy is like a uh, street sign. You know, there, there's the pole. And the pole would, of course, be the bedrock of comedy, which is uh, jokes. The pole is jokes. And the part of the sign, that the part that says the name, like Havenhurst, or uh, depending on where you live, Main Street, it's a classic sign. That would be the industry, you know? It's telling you, it's telling you what you should like, but should you like it? Well, at the very least, it's a signpost to where to go. And, I mean, can you have a street sign without a street? No. I mean, they're kind of like, so the street is, of course, then like like a, a DVD special that came out for someone. And, uh, you know, the, the lines on the street would be, you know, the audience. Yeah, the audience. And, you know, what's a main street without a, a ye old candy shop, right? <laughs> Everyone needs a ye, ye old candy shop. It's it's got saltwater taffy for days, and that those big barrels of saltwater taffy are they're also jokes. Each one a little hand wrapped joke, right? <laughs> um, and um, there's a sailor that works there, and that's that's Sinbad, who, as we remember from Charlie Satello, episode of this podcast, is a, he's just a great guy and very funny and just undeniably going to take over. So check out Sinbad um, and... Uh